Okay, we're looking at John fif- seven fifty three to eight eleven, which is um, the story of a woman caught in adultery. Um, so if you turn to that, we'll read it. It's oh, I'm doing the slides, aren't I? Look at this. Works and everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do that lots. Okay. Um, they went each to their, his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing them in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in an act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do they say? This they said to test him that they might have something to charge and bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest. And... Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She answered, No one, Lord. Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now and sin no more. We have an interesting question to ask today. If you're astute and have looked at your um, Bible footnotes, you may notice it's either in a double bracket or under footnote saying earliest manuscripts do not include verses 753 to 811 so this makes us beg the question um, why have I been given this one Nigel (laughs) 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 it's not kind okay yeah it's a collective piece of wisdom. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I've been, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll give it a go. Um, <laughs> right. Um, I should explain. When I started this, I started with some um, fear and trepidation because of this. And then Dad said, helpfully, why don't you listen to John Piper? And he made it ten times worse. <laughs> so a lot of this sermon is borrowed. Um, and I shall uh, try and explain it to you. Um, This text is not in the original manuscripts of John's Gospel, and it does not appear in such manuscripts till about the 5th century. It appears in a number of different places in the Bible, so it appears four times in John's Gospel. It appears here at verse 53, uh, in verse 36 in verse 44 and in John 21 25 so it would appear that whoever was adding this story didn't know quite where to put it uh, they also put it in Luke's gospel in Luke 21 38 um, it doesn't fit for writing style of John um, and particularly easy one to spot is that it refers to the scribes and the Pharisees which is a phrase John never uses in his gospel um, and John's gospel reads perfectly well without it. If you go from John uh, seven fifty two, 
and skip down to John 8, 12. The story reads perfectly well without this passage being in it. So this all leads us to conclude that John didn't write this and someone else added it later on. So then, this is rather odd. If there's a passage in our Bible that uh, doesn't seem to belong there, should we then cast out on the rest? Well, I think the answer is probably no, um, but I want to explain that. Um, first, um, the historical evidence for, um, for Bible is huge. The vast number of manuscripts we have, hopefully, yes. Um, here are some other examples from texts around that time. Caesar's Gallic Wars, um, which was written 50 BC, um, there are 10 manuscripts that can be said to be in the original language of that. And the earliest of those is from the 10th century AD. And no one would question that that they're reading Caesar's words. Then there's Livy, who was a Roman historian around the time of Christ. Um, There are about 20 manuscripts of his. um, And there are later, um, the earlier manuscripts for him are about the 14th century. Um, So you're getting on to the Renaissance and uh, there's a point at the 15th century where this all becomes irrelevant because of the printing press. But up until that point, these manuscripts were copied by hand. Um, and so um, there's a vast difference between manuscripts. And as they get later, they get less reliable because they've been copied and copied. Um, then there's Tatticus, uh, and he wrote about 100, uh, that says AD, it should be BC. Um, and there are two of his, uh, but no one would um, question that though they, the remaining documents of his are at least a thousand years since he died. No one would question his. Um, so if we can then look at the um, New Testament, um, it was written, we think, up until between the years of 50 and 100 AD. Uh, and um, the earliest document we found is a piece of uh, John's Gospel that dates to about 125 AD. Um, So if you compare that to the others, um, it's far older. But also, you notice the number of documents we have. Um, And what we have about that is we can safely say then that compared to the others we can make a far more accurate um, assessment of what the original said. (coughs) We've done the age of your manuscripts. Um, Now, what you'll find, what I said was that until the printing press was invented, all these manuscripts were made by hand, and um, it's a bit like Chinese whispers. By the time you get to the end, there are going to be differences. So if there are two documents and they both say are from a similar time and they say different things, you don't know which is correct. But if there are a hundred documents and two of them have anomalies or differences, you can go through and work out which is right. And so um, scholars spend years and hundreds of years have been spent trying to work out which is the most correct to the original Bible. If this isn't making sense, we can talk about it later. Um, 
Uh, this is a, a geek I found a quote from. Um, he was a guy called Frederick Kenyon. He was a, uh, one of the most renowned Bible scholars of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And he said concerning this um, and the historical documents found of the Bible, um, it is reassuring in the end to find that all the general study and result of these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authority of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity for veritable words of God. And what he's saying is that um, if you look at this and compare it to other documents from that time, we are very certain that the Bible is as it was written originally. Um, so did this story, which isn't part of that um, original Bible, uh, did it even ever happen? Well, another Bible scholar, Don Carson, says, uh, there is little reason to doubt this event here described occurred. And another, Bruce Metzer, uh, said, the account has all the earmarks of hero historical veracity. That is to say, it, it happened. Um, so, um, how do we approach uh, this text? Well, we can't approach it with the um, authority of Scripture because 2 uh, Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is God-breathed and has authority for teaching, rebuking and correcting that the man of God may be perfectly equipped. Um, and can we say that of this if it's not in the original Bible? Well, probably not. So how do we approach a text like this? Um, as history from which we can learn, and if we're going to teach anything from it, um, it has to be a truth that is already acknowledged in the Bible. So... Um, Another difficulty I found with this was when looking at a story like this, it's always good to have the context of which it was written in. But if we don't know quite when this happened, that's almost impossible to do. What we can say happened um, was Jesus was teaching because it tells us that. Um, and um, we can say certain things about um, for people who were there. So Jesus is teaching uh, for crowds. Uh, in John's Gospel, it tells us a lot about um, Jesus um, and for crowds. In the other Gospels, we might get the impression that a lot of the time um, they just listen. But in John's Gospel, he tells us a lot about how the crowds grumble at Jesus and how they um, give him a really hard time. So when we think of the crowds here, we mustn't think of a... Um, sort of like you, just happily <laughs> listening. Uh, this is a crowd who are hostile in, and looking for him uh, to make a mistake. They're not um, decided whether they agree with what he's saying. Um, and then uh, Jesus is, um, has had several run-ins with the Pharisees and religious leaders. Um, okay. Um, what we can look at is who is involved in this story. Um, first, um, we'll look at the woman. Uh, 
she's been brought in. She's probably frightened. Um, well, she, I, I think probably we can say more than probably. She's frightened. Um, uh, she's been shamed by the crowds. Her sins have been found out and made very public. So everyone knows what she's done. Uh, and she's been caught and she knows she's guilty. She, um, she's not pleading her innocence. She's not someone who's uh, been caught wrongly. She's guilty and she's been caught and everyone knows about it. Um, then we have the Pharisees. Um, um, they're out to get Jesus. Um, they're the religious elite. The scribes would have been the teachers and the ones who had had a huge um, education. They'd have been the um, sort of um, religious and um, academic elite of the country. Um, but they're also um, the Pharisees who are with them. Now, the Pharisees weren't the scribes and they weren't the teachers. They were sort of the disciples of the teachers and the um, they would have seen themselves as better as everyone else because, oops, um, because of um, their following of the teacher closely. And they would have sat around the teacher and listened to all his teachings. And uh, much as Jesus' disciples followed him, they would have followed their own scribe. And uh, what you find with them is they would then go out and enforce their scribes' views and their scribes' laws on everyone else. So it would be like saying, um, I follow Nigel and um, I think you should all dress like Nigel and um, Nigel's car is the best car and I notice my dad doesn't drive a, um, what is it, a Citroen something. Um, and so I've, I'm not going to go in the car with dad, I'll get a train home later or go in mum's car. Um, and I'm going to persecute my dad until he turns into Nigel. Um, <laughs> or Steve, for that matter. Um, Steve drives a Mercedes, but um, that's beside the point, probably. Um, <laughs> shall we get back to it? Um, then we have the crowd, and I couldn't really find a picture for a crowd, um, so I decided that would do. Um, I've already said they'd be split. Uh, but they'd be split in another way. They'd be those in the crowd who were already there listening to Jesus' teaching. Um, they look like quite a cheery crowd, actually. Um, but there'd have been those in the crowd who had come along with the uh, um, hubbub caused by um, the Pharisees and for religious leaders dragging this woman. If you drag someone through the street, you're going to get a crowd. Um, so there's two parts to the crowd. There's those who are probably quite um, happy to listen to Jesus and those who had just come along to see what's going on. And then there's Jesus. And I should explain before I pop up this slide that uh, last week, Nigel had a rather interesting interpretation of what Jesus looked like. And for, well, the internet is a wonderful thing. I got quite distracted. And uh, this is Jesus... Um, there's a man has these interpretations of um, this is with the surgeon uh, or the motorbikist. Um, I think the point I'm trying to make is we don't actually know what Jesus looked like. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy him for French horns, so uh, it's it's quite a interesting website. Um, 
Um, I think it might have been. Um, I did wonder about drawing my own, but I ran out of time. Um, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and moving quickly on, we come to the story. These were some of my favourite stories growing up, so I thought I'd choose some as a backdrop. Um, that's a bit embarrassing. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> Jesus teaching. Uh, that's what Jesus often says he came to do. He came to the temple to teach. Um, and his teaching often brings him into um, friction with the Pharisees because he teaches so much that is against their laws and their um, restrictions. But the crowds are drawn to him. And earlier on in John's Gospel, it says that they're divided. Many of them think he's a great prophet. Some of them think he's the Messiah. Uh, others think um, they don't know what to think, really. Um, they're undecided. Um, so much so that the Pharisees send their own guards to arrest Jesus. And the guards come back to the Pharisees and say, uh, we've not arrested him. No one speaks like this man. Um, and so the Pharisees can't even arrest him because their own guards are convinced or um, amazed by what Jesus is saying. I didn't know I'd put those in. Um, if a woman is brought to Jesus, um, Jesus is teaching, and there's instantly a disruption in the crowd as this woman is brought to him. Um, so you can imagine the crowd splitting up around him as she's thrown into the midst, and the crowd are watching to see what he will do. And we already know they're divided. Some of them will already be thinking, um, will he obey the law? Uh, because they all knew what the law says the penalty for this was. Um, but they also all knew that this was a, a trap because the Jews didn't have the right to put anyone to death. So the authority bring their charge and they know they have the right. Leviticus uh, 20 says that anyone caught in adultery um, is um, worthy of the death penalty. Um, it's, you can go and read it later. But Jesus ignores them, so they press on. Um, and what we find with this is that religion is merciless. They have no care for the woman. Uh, they have no care for giving her a proper trial. This isn't a proper trial. It's just a, we've grabbed her and we're going to bring her in. Um, but their sole objective here is not that justice is done, but they want to trap Jesus if they were concerned about justice, there's one thing or one person missing. It's the man involved. Because the law says, uh, it doesn't just say um, find one of the party and uh, do justice. It's you find both. Um, and they've ignored that. They're not interested in justice. They're interested in trapping Jesus. Um, but Jesus shames them. He says, um, he stands up and says, if any of you are guilty, guiltless, um, you cast the first stone. And it's amazing because what they've done is um, they've shamed this woman publicly. And uh, Jesus ignores them. And so they press on thinking, we've got to get an answer here. He stands up and says something that reverses the shame and puts it on them. They can't say we're guiltless. 
uh, and so they have to walk away. And it's interesting, um, but we're not going to go there, that the old, older ones leave first. And you get the impression that there is a humility and something going on there. Um, but I'm getting sidetracked again. Um, so then Jesus turns to the woman. And I think at this point we can miss it because we know the story. But there's a big point here. Jesus is the only one in that crowd who is guiltless. Jesus is the only one who, by his own judgment, whoever is guiltless, cast the first stone. Um, at this point, the woman's not out of danger. Jesus could say, actually, I'm, I'm the one who's not sinned here. Um, pass me that rock. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He forgives her and sends her away. There's two things that happen here. First, um, which is stunning, he ignores the law. Um, and um, that's odd because he's already said, um, not one dot shall fall from this law, not one commandment shall fall from the law of God. And he's taught that to all the people publicly. Um, so is he going against what he said? Um, how can Jesus ignore the law? Um, we'll leave that one hanging a while. Uh, Jesus brings grace to the woman. He doesn't treat her as she deserves. Uh, he sends her away. He forgives her sin. Um, she shouldn't get to walk away, but she does. Um, but Jesus gives her this um, word. He says, go away and sin no more. And it's not that he's saying, I've forgiven you. Don't let it happen again or you're unforgiven. He's freeing her from her sin. As we sang earlier, um, my chains are gone. My heart is free. Um, when Jesus saves us, it's not just that he um, forgives us and leaves us to go and live a life without sin. He doesn't... Um, he doesn't save us from one law and put us under another law. It's not that we're saved up until the point we're saved and then we're thrown back in it and you better live um, a good life or you're unsaved again. Or it's not that um, you're saved and your sins are forgiven, but you have to please God by living right. No, God accepts us. Um, as we sung earlier, uh, that first song about how we are, um, Jesus is our righteousness in heaven, the Bible teaches. Um, and so I'm righteous because Jesus is righteous and you're righteous because Jesus is righteous if you're a Christian. Um, so it doesn't matter what your day's been like. It doesn't matter whether you've uh, spent the day pr in prayer and fasting or if you spent it, I don't know, uh, tripping up grannies in Chester High Street or something like that. Not that I do that. Um, um, but um, our righteousness is in Christ. That means that God looks at me as if I was righteous like Christ. If I was I'm clothed in Jesus. Um, and so when Jesus says, go and sin no more, 
it's because he's freed her from that life of sin and clothed her in this righteousness. Um, and so it's not a command to go and slave away. It's a command to go and be free and to go live by his spirit and enjoy the freedom for which he has set her free. But it's a freedom that comes at a great cost because when we see these stories um, of what Jesus says, um, he's saying this and he's trapping himself in that punishment. He says not one word of the law not one word of Leviticus that says she should be stoned to death will depart from it. Actually, what he's saying is, um, I'm ignoring that law for you, but I'm not ignoring it. I'm taking your place. And so that is why Jesus' whole purpose on earth, he is set from uh, John 3.16 where he says, for the, um, oh no, that's the wrong one. Could someone say, I've got John t- Mark 10, t- something in my head. So, yeah. Oh yeah. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, and his whole purpose coming to earth is not to judge, but actually to be judged for the sins of the world and so to free us. And so we're not bought cheaply. He's not freed her cheaply. He's not ignored the law. Um, He has upheld the law, but taken it upon himself. And so we had to ask in conclusion, and this has come very soon, um, why did the early church love this story so much that they um, wedged it into the Bible. Um, I think it's because it shows biblical truth. There's nothing in this story that you couldn't find anywhere else. And the biblical truth it shows is that Jesus takes the law and he replaces it with grace. And that's the message of the gospel. We all deserve the wrath of God that we talked about earlier, the wrath of God that is a hurricane, an unending fire. That's what we deserve. But God comes, as God comes, Jesus comes, and he takes that on the cross. He takes that on the tree so that we can be free. And he gives us this liberating word, go and sin no more. So if you're here today and you've not met Jesus as that one who says to you, you're free, you're forgiven from your sin. Go and sin no more. Go and be free. Um, Now's an excellent time to accept him. Um, It's a free offer. It doesn't cost you anything. Well, it will cost you the rest of your life. But it's it's not a, um, a burden. Jesus says, my burden is light. He says, um, it will be better. Um, it's not something you would, anyone would turn back on once they had. It's a glorious thing. It's a joyful thing. Um, and it's to know your sins forgiven, to know everything wiped out and um, yourself accepted by God. 
And Jesus says, it won't cost you. You don't have to earn it. I've earned it for you. So if you've not known that, um, speak to Nigel or Dad or uh, Phil (laughs) or Steve um, (laughs) later. Um, But I think the... um, the conclusion of this is that we've been brought from the law to grace. So we're not to live under law, we're to live under grace and enjoy the freedom that God has given us and look forward to the freedom we'll know in heaven.